Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this episode, we'll be discussing the row about quarantine and the government's decision to put everyone arriving in the UK into isolation for 14 days. But there's been a big backlash from Tory MPs, the industry and some ministers. But on the plus side, we've got a sign of how pubs and restaurants are going to look when they reopen when the lockdown is further eased later this summer. But there's also been some chaos in Boris Johnson's government, with farcical scenes of MPs queuing for 45 minutes to vote, for some very depressing statistics about how coronavirus is affecting the BME population, and general misuse of statistics by Matt Hancock, the health secretary. And there's also the UK's significant offer to the population of Hong Kong to come to the UK to live and work and possibly become citizens. I'm delighted to be joined by our political editor, George Parker, Chief Political Correspondent Jim Picard, and Political Correspondent Laura Hughes. Thank you all for joining. If you find yourself liking this episode of FT Politics, then do subscribe to all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. The main political story in Westminster this week has been about quarantine. This is a policy that's been rumoured for many weeks now as part of the government's efforts to thwart the spread of coronavirus. From June the 8th, all arrivals into the UK will have to go into isolation for 14 days, with hefty fines and penalties if they break the rules. The government has strong public support for this, but there's been a pretty clear backlash to people questioning why the UK is doing this now and is it actually going to help. So Jim Picard, if you can just take us through this quarantine idea, when the coronavirus crisis began, Lots of other countries had quarantines in place, but the UK didn't. They said that there weren't enough arrivals for it to make much of a difference. But just as other countries are lifting their quarantines, we're introducing ours. So it all seems a bit strange. What's the thinking behind this? So if you go back three or four months, the UK did actually introduce very limited quarantines on people arriving into the UK from some of the most infected parts of the world. So if you were trying to come in from Wuhan province, or if you're trying to come in from Lombardy and Northern Italy and a couple of other places, you were quarantined back then. And then almost inexplicably, they dropped that policy and we had no quarantine at all from anywhere in the world for several months. And if you look back at the SAGE, the Scientific Advisory Group, papers from, I think it was in late March, they thought there was a negligible benefit to having quarantines on people coming in. And these papers made the point that only 0.5% of infection cases appeared to be the result of people traveling into the country. And remember, people were talking more in those days about herd immunity. And so the whole thing was dropped. Since then, we've, of course, had the significant change in tune. We've had Sir Patrick Vallance, the chief scientific advisor, telling the parliamentary committee that actually a lot of the cases in this country were the result of people flooding in from elsewhere. And 
politically, the government's decided that it would make us look very tough and responsible and health conscious should we quarantine everyone coming to the country, whether they're visitors or whether they're British people coming back. You have to go through quite a laborious process of registering online and you have to stay in your home for a couple of weeks. You have to tell your authorities where you are. You can go out and do shopping uh, if necessary, but there are quite heavy fines for people who breach it. And industry, and in particular the tourism and aviation industries, are saying, look, the horse has already bolted. The stable gate should have been closed ages ago. You are doing this just to the point where we should be making it easier to travel for economic purposes. And there is quite a large chorus of disapproval around this policy. But as number 10 likes to point out, it's still very, very popular if you look at the opinion polls. George Parker, you can see the logic of this policy that if you're saying to people that we're going to lift the lockdown, we need to be able to control coronavirus within the UK, and that requires controlling who's coming in or out. But it seems as if this is a policy that's come by focus group that we know Downing Street does focus groups several times a week. It does very frequent polling. And as Jim said, this is a very popular policy, although there are questions about whether the public think this is just stopping people from coming in as opposed to stopping them from going on holiday. But it didn't seem to have really been tested out with the Tory party at all, because I've not really heard of a single Tory MP who wants to keep this thing in place for that big period of time. And even within government, you've had ministers like Grant Shapps, the Transport Secretary and the Chancellor Rishi Sunak arguing this is going to be very bad for the economy. And we've seen that kind of mixed messaging in the fact that when this policy was announced, you had Priti Patel, the Home Secretary, saying we owe it to the victims of coronavirus to bring in this quarantine. But then other briefings to other newspapers saying, well, it's not going to last that long because we're still going to have holidays this summer, which is the contrary to what the government said a couple of weeks ago. Yes, the policy really is certainly seen by many Conservative MPs as evidence of government by focus group, because it doesn't seem to make very much scientific sense at all. We had the scene this week, I think it was on Wednesday, at the press conference with Boris Johnson, that Sir Patrick Balance, the chief scientific advisor, was saying this policy of a quarantine worked best if you had very low levels of infection in the UK, which isn't the case, and if you had much higher rates of infection in the countries you're targeting, which also wasn't the case. In fact, the government's scientific advisory committee was bypassed when the government decided to do this. And yes, the policy was popular when it was polled with the public, but I wonder whether people have necessarily grasped that it actually refers to them as well as to foreigners. And it certainly angered many Conservative MPs. It was hard to find any Tory MPs in the House of Commons who were supportive of Priti Patel, the Home Secretary, when she announced this policy. A lot of them very angry. They think it's unfounded on the science. They think it cuts across the interests of a lot of Conservative voters who are probably looking forward to their holidays in Tuscany or Provence. And even just on a personal level for a lot of these Tory MPs, they've had quite a tough time. They've been through an election in December. They could do with a holiday themselves. And they just think the whole policy is muddle-headed. And you can tell, actually, the government's starting to think about unpicking the policy already, even before it's launched on Monday. And Laura Hughes, from industry as well, you've seen that the UK's airlines and hotels are already in dire straits. And they've been very swift in saying, look, if you have this quarantine throughout the whole summer, we're going to be in even more serious trouble because people simply just won't come here if they've got to quarantine for 14 days. And again, it's this big dilemma at the heart of government. What's driving it? Is it the science? Is it politics? Is it the economics? Or is it just the whims of public opinion? 
On the public opinion point, where the government are going to struggle to sell this to politicians who have raised concerns and also the airline industry who have repeatedly been warning that they're an essential part of the economy because of the workers that fly on those flights and also exports and imports using domestic flights because we didn't see really strict quarantine rules at the beginning of this crisis. So why now? And that's the question that the government is going to have to answer. But clearly, it's a huge, huge problem for the tourism industry and the airline industry. And it's an interesting story that we did in the FT on Friday morning about certain European countries, including Spain and Portugal, who might be quite keen to see the UK government looking at these transport corridors that might let British holidaymakers visit resorts without needing to quarantine for 14 days. And this idea does seem to be picking up some traction. But there's a point, I think, at which a lot of these European countries might be looking at the UK's handling of this crisis, seeing the numbers of coronavirus cases and making a decision that, yes, it might be good for the economy, but you also don't want coronavirus injected into your economy by allowing Brits to come over without quarantining rules. So it's a really tricky political decision that the government has to make now. It does look as though polling is actually in favour of what they're proposing. It's just still not totally clear why they've decided to introduce this so late in the game. So this idea of air bridges, George, is that when two countries deem each other to have coronavirus under control, you can fly backwards and forwards between them without having to have quarantine checks. Now, for those of us who are very keen to go to Europe to see some sun and a different scenery this summer, that sounds great. But the flaw in this plan that the government's been talking about is whether other European countries want us, because as the statistics showed this week, the UK's almost hit 40,000 deaths from coronavirus and may well hit 50,000. We're not exactly a shining beacon to the rest of Europe on how to deal with this. So would these countries even want to have air bridges with the UK, despite the deep pockets of British tourists? Well, Laura touched on this, and Jim wrote a great story with some of our colleagues from the Mediterranean Rim, if you like, this week, which suggested that although you might think they would be rather wary about importing coronavirus from an island which seems to be still have relatively high incidence of coronavirus, in fact, countries like Turkey... Portugal, Spain and Greece all seem willing to strike an air bridge deal with the British government, which raises the prospect that people will be able to travel on summer holidays to those countries, probably from mid-July onwards, without having to go through quarantine when they come back. It's a different question, I think, with France, which is a much more difficult relationship with the UK on this. I think President Macron was trying to secure an opt-out for French travellers with Boris Johnson earlier on, and that seemed to fall apart. But certainly, and rather surprisingly, yes, the air bridge to the Mediterranean does seem to be a possibility. But a bit close to home, there has been some good news this week, and that's pubs and restaurants, because they've all been closed since the end of March when the lockdown began. And Boris Johnson's government has said they're going to be the last things to reopen because it's very hard to maintain social distancing. But Jim, you've got a sense this week of what's going to happen and some of the guidelines the government is setting out for when they're going to open. And we're talking about the middle of July, is that right, when they're going to have to be adapted for social distancing and be allowed to reopen. I think some restaurants are looking to be ready from the 4th of July, but realistically, it's going to be a bit later than that. So what's it going to look and feel like going out for a drink or having a meal? So the wider context is that things are sort of defrosting across the economy. We've got the non-food retail opening in mid-June. I think that's why Grant Shapps, the transport sector, announced yesterday that people are going to have to wear face coverings on public transport across England, 
from mid-June because they're expecting to see more people moving around. And sort of one of the last pieces of the jigsaw is the hospitality sector because that's always posed the biggest challenges in terms of health and safety. How on earth do you keep a, a pub safe at closing time on a Friday or Saturday night? And we got our hands on the business department's proposals that they sent out at the start of the week to industry. Some of it is what you might expect, which is queuing systems outside, queuing systems for the loose. Tables are going to have to be at least two metres apart. So if you're a pub or if a restaurant, you're going to have to come up with a new maximum capacity for people that are allowed in, which is going to be much lower than it was previously. And then there are some kind of curious pub restaurant specific changes that are going to happen so sachets of salt and pepper sachets of ketchup if you insist on putting out salt and pepper grinders or ketchup bottles they're going to have to be cleaned after every sitting people are going to be told to stay away from the bar and so things are going to feel quite different people working in pubs and restaurants will be expected to bring food and drinks to your table on trays take the payment at the table. It's just part of this incredibly detailed advice for every single industry as we move out of the lockdown and just in terms of trying to stop the coronavirus infection from having this second wave that a lot of us are worried is going to happen. When you describe all that, Jim, obviously it sounds onerous for all those employers, but it does sound workable in a way. And you can see how the new normal, as everybody describes it, will develop. But of course, there is this balance for employees, isn't there? Because this is all going to cost a lot of money. And if the two metre social distancing rule continues, that means far fewer patrons in restaurants and in pubs. Obviously, the government wants to get these places open and running again. But is it going to be viable for all these institutions to continue with all these strict rules in place? Yeah, I think that's a really good question, Seb. I think it could be worse. We could have been forced to sit opposite our hot dates with plastic sheeting between us. It's not going to be that peculiar. But you're right. If pubs and restaurants are going to have fewer people in them, then clearly they're going to be less profitable. The same with, if you think about high street shops, think of clothes shops where people aren't going to be able to use the changing rooms. And also people are nervous about coronavirus still. You can see much lower footfall. And you think about what the profit margins are on restaurants and pubs and on shops. And you think, how many of these businesses fail in any given year anyway? And then you think also of the structural problems facing Britain's high streets and how many shopping chains were in deep trouble even before coronavirus pandemic hit the UK. You can see an awful lot of companies and chains in terrible trouble, even though we are supposedly moving into the end of the lockdown. There have already been quite a few business failures that people are aware of. I think there are going to be more. And backtracking ever so slightly to quarantine again you know willie walsh from british airways today friday is, is threatening to potentially take legal challenge against the quarantine because he's calling it an irrational policy that's going to devastate his industry ba is apparently losing 178 million pounds a week in cash and that is very much not an isolated example of business in trouble at the moment And the sense, George, that we've got from the Treasury is that this is the huge challenge facing the government this summer because the immediate threat was coronavirus and stopping the spread of the epidemic, which, as we've said, they've had mixed results with and they'll be debated for many years on what could have been done differently. But the economic challenge is the one that's rearing its head. And we know that 
the Prime Minister is going to give a big speech sometime in June, setting out his vision for rebuilding Britain. And then we're going to have not a budget the Treasury is keen to insist, but some kind of event that's going to set out what that recovery is going to look like. Do we have any sense about what we can expect to see? Because those figures Jim's just set out there, it is really tough. And there is this big threat of mass unemployment, which will have profound political effects and profound health effects too, which could be just as great as those from coronavirus. Yes, as we move into the recovery phase, both Number 10 and the Treasury are keen to have a sort of forward-looking statement setting out how they're going to respond to what you just identified there as the big problem, not just of a stagnant economy, but mass unemployment that we haven't really seen since the 1980s and mass youth unemployment potentially as well. So the Treasury is keen to play down expectations around this event. They're calling it a summer statement. And I think it falls into a variety of categories. I mean, there will certainly be a big emphasis on skills, Boris Johnson, I think, rather blurted out at his press conference this week, catching people by surprise in the government, that they were they guaranteed apprenticeship for everyone aged between 16 and 25. That's a big offer. Second thing will come into the field of infrastructure, trying to identify the sometimes mythical shovel-ready projects to get the economy going. These are not long-term, 30-year big transport projects, but these are things that can get going quite quickly which is one of the reasons why they like talking about potholes all the time, but local government schemes, local roundabouts, road improvements, bike lanes. And then the question comes about whether there will be any fiscal changes, uh, any tax changes at this point. And it's not clear yet because the problem isn't so much what do you do to inject extra demand into the economy, but it's a question of when you actually do it. If you do, for example, what Alistair Darling did after the financial crash when he was the Labour Chancellor, which is to have a temporary cut in VAT to get people spending in the shops, That's all well and good. But if you're doing it at a time when people are reluctant to go to the shops or shops are closed, then you're wasting your ammunition. So it's a timing question, really. You really want to inject that demand stimulus at the point when the economy is just starting to get going again. So how far they go down a tax changing route in this statement, which we're expecting sometime in July, has yet to be determined. And Laura, when we take this in the context of the whole government, it's been a pretty chaotic week for Boris Johnson as they're trying to grapple with all these things about quarantine, about easing the lockdown and about the economic effects as well. And I think the whole thing was symbolised by this ridiculous row about parliamentary voting that when the lockdown began, this virtual hybrid parliament was brought in, which was widely praised by MPs and commentators for allowing scrutiny to continue despite social distancing. MPs could log on, they could engage with parliamentary debates via Zoom, they created an online virtual voting hub to vote on legislation, and it was assumed this would be in place for some months. But then very abruptly, Jacob Rees-Mogg announced that it was going to come to an end, that it wasn't working very well, and that was it. And we had the absolutely farcical scenes this week of when MPs were forced to vote in person on several divisions. They had to queue for one kilometre around Parliament. What was the government thinking when you've got a perfectly adequate online voting system? Yes, it might not be perfect, but it's a lot better than wasting the time of seeing the Chancellor, who, as we were just saying, is trying to sort out the economy and stop widespread mass unemployment, having to waste an hour and a half of his day standing in a queue to vote. Exactly. And you think about all the constituency cases that MPs might have been able to deal with in the time that they would just stood outside in queues. It makes you question why they changed the system. Why did the government pick a row when they really didn't need to at a time where they're already coming under sustained scrutiny? One of the main points from opposition and even Tory MPs was that 
this new system discriminates against those who are vulnerable and can't come in. And a lot of MPs are quite elderly. There are some disabled MPs, members of parliament who have to care for really vulnerable people at home and have to travel from all across the country to get to work. While the government messages work from home while you can, it just looked a bit odd to see MPs queuing as if they were queuing in the IKEA lines to cast a vote. There were really shocking pictures that some Labour MPs were tweeting of moments as this queue went through Parliament, where actually it was really hard to stay two metres apart, which is what Jacob Rees-Mogg, the leader of the Commons, has said MPs will follow. And then, of course, we saw Alec Sharma, the business secretary, sweating at the dispatch box and rushing home to self-isolate and take a coronavirus test. He did actually test negative for coronavirus, as George found out he'd eaten some dodgy salmon. But in that 24 hours, it was pretty scary, actually, because you realise the impact of an MP having coronavirus and what it might mean for all of those that they come into contact with in the House of Commons. Alex Sharma had a meeting with Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak for 45 minutes the day before. And so if Alok Sharma had tested positive, potentially our Prime Minister would again have had to isolate for 14 days. And it made a real mockery, actually, of the government's plans. It really shows how impractical it is. Clearly, they want MPs back. Some MPs feel other people have to queue and have had to go back to work if they're essential workers. So why shouldn't they? But really, it just felt like an argument the government didn't need to have. And I think that's the key point, isn't it, George, that when you look back at the whole Dominic Cummings affair, it ended up in a big row with its MPs that it felt it didn't need to have. And this row about voting was the same thing, that when you speak to the people who were defending the plan, they said the virtual pod doesn't work terribly well and Parliament needs to set an example. But really, the argument was that the Whips office felt that the Tory party was becoming unwhippable, that everyone was very rowdy, they were disconnected, they didn't really know what was going on, and they wanted to bring that sense of unity. So despite them insisting it being about practical reasons, the reason that Parliament came back was for pure politics. And that if Alok Sharma had got coronavirus and had spread it to who knows how many MPs, that would have backfired spectacularly. And again, it's added to this sense that for whatever reason, Downing Street and Boris Johnson is getting into needless rows that are distracting from what it should really be doing, which is dealing with the health and economic consequences of coronavirus. Yeah, you mentioned the disconnect between number 10 and the party and this attempt to bring MPs back to Westminster as a way of reconnecting them with the Prime Minister. Well, I mean, coronavirus has obviously put distance between all of us and our colleagues, certainly has done in the case of politics. But I think there's a real sense at the moment that the Prime Minister is quite an isolated figure, both from his parliamentary party, as you mentioned, but also from his cabinet. And speaking to Tory MPs here at Westminster this week, a number of them think the Prime Minister is still well below his normal fighting level. He doesn't seem to be himself after that bout of coronavirus. There's a very restive mood in the party. The whole episode of people being forced to queue up for nearly an hour to vote, lots of gallows humour around people saying they wish they'd brought their sort of Gatwick Airport speedy board pass along. People complained they were being bunched up at the bottom of escalators. It was just a senseless row to pick with people who have ready access to journalists who are well able to express their dissatisfaction with the government and the missteps and mistakes are piling up. Their parliamentary offices have been bombarded over the last few weeks with complaints about the behaviour of Dominic Cummings, which means that their parliamentary assistants and secretaries are unhappy because they're having to defend what lots of Tory MPs regard was indefensible. So the mood is pretty bad. 
And I think Boris Johnson needs to get a grip on policy and his party quite soon. Well, certainly not anywhere near the point where there's an insurrection. But nevertheless, there is a real sense of anxiety and disgruntlement on the Tory benches at the moment. And I think, Jim, one of the signs of that unease was in this report that came out this week rather abruptly about how coronavirus is affecting the UK's BME population, that there's been some hints for a while that those people from black and ethnic minority communities were being disproportionately affected. And the government had a report that absolutely confirmed that that was the case. Yes, and we'd seen medical suggestions that this was happening over the last few months, but it was very interesting to see it. And from this 140-page government report, I mean, the thing I found quite interesting though, is they did seem to still shy away from whether ethnicity was the main factor or indeed whether everything was just complicated by what doctors describe as comorbidities, in other words, other medical conditions, whether it could also be affected by the predominance of people from ethnic minorities in certain professions, such as frontline medical and social care work. I did look through that report trying to find more detail on precisely how much of this effect was down to the virus alone. And they seem to have not made that conclusion, if you see what I mean. So I think there's probably still more research that will emerge on that as we go through this pandemic. And finally, just briefly to touch on the only other big non-COVID story this week, which was Hong Kong. Boris Johnson made the announcement that he was going to extend the rights of British national overseas to three million people living in Hong Kong following threats from the Chinese regime to clamp down once again. Laura, this is something that people on the right of UK politics have been calling for for quite a long time. Various think tanks put out papers saying that it was the UK's moral obligation to reach out to people of Hong Kong, given its responsibilities under the 1984 treaty that was signed during the handover. But this was a very big and bold move by Boris Johnson. It would represent the biggest change in the UK's immigration policy, opening the door potentially to three million people to come work and become citizens here. But it's one that also risks angering China. This offer is really quite a striking move from a government that is committed to restricting immigration, that shut the door to free entry to the UK for EU citizens after voting through Brexit at the end of last year. It's obviously coming at a time where there is a willingness now from number 10 to really stand up to Beijing. We've seen months of pro-democracy protests, and now we have this imposition of national security legislation on Hong Kong, which the government is very clear, breaks the agreement that we signed. And the reason why the government feel that this is something that they should do is There is, of course, a very unlikely chance of seeing three million Hong Kong residents actually move here. But if you get enough of the wealth creators start to move to London or to base themselves from London, that will take away a lot of Hong Kong's power and status as a business hub. And that's where it will really hurt the Chinese. They've hit back and they've said this is not part of the agreement. There was a memorandum that that always said the Brits were never going to do this. But lawyers and advisors to the UK government have said, no, it's absolutely fine. And there's a sort of irony there, of course, where China has selectively picked bits of this agreement over the last few years and decided where and where they don't apply. And this really is the British government turning around and saying, well, to complete that game, it's really fascinating. I mean, the last time I can remember the British government doing something like this was in the early 1970s when a Conservative government, again, 
made quite a similar gesture when it accepted almost 30,000 Ugandan Asians with British passports after they were banished by Idi Amin. And it's striking how different it is potentially to the conversations we had over Brexit and Turkey potentially joining the EU. But when you talk to foreign office officials, the government believes it's the right thing to do. It's the moral thing to do. There's a willingness to stand up to Beijing. George, I thought was a very striking symbol of what global Britain might actually mean, because it's often been criticised, this idea that it's a concept without any basis. It doesn't make any sense for the UK to be leaving its largest trading partners and trying to break out into the world and get trade deals that might not help boost trade that much. But this was a clear symbol of the intention of what Boris Johnson might mean by global Britain, by looking beyond Europe by taking a humanitarian approach that is promoting liberal democratic values of Britain. But it goes against what a lot of people would see Brexit being about, which was to reduce immigration. And at some point, he's going to have to tie these two things together. There's big public support for the policy to extend BNO to the Hong Kong residents. But that example Laura referenced in the early 1970s, there was a backlash then. Well, I think it's a very welcome decision to hold open the prospect of citizenship to people in Hong Kong with British national overseas passports. And it takes me back a bit to the 1990s when Paddy Ashdown, the former leader of the Liberal Democrats, was almost a lone voice in arguing the case for exactly this thing happening for three million Hong Kong citizens. So it's very welcome, whether it amounts to a strategic vision of the world from Boris Johnson, I'm not entirely sure. Certainly, Boris Johnson seems to be being sucked into the idea of some sort of US-led Cold War with China. But when you consider that global Britain is yet to be fully defined, and the starting point of it is that we're putting up barriers to trade and detaching ourselves from our closest partners in Europe, and now we seem to be intent on pursuing some sort of commercial war with the second largest economy in the world, China, in the hope that we can inveigle our way into the commercial affections of the United States and its well-known free trade proponent, Donald Trump, I'm not sure entirely that the strategy stacks up. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much as ever to George, Laura and Jim for joining. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard, might see some more FT journalism, then you can find our latest subscription offers at ft.com forward slash offer. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Breen Turner. Until next time, thanks for listening. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.